for choosing the podcast of LifePoint Church in Ozark, Missouri. LifePoint is a body of believers led by God's Spirit to engage in His redemptive mission in the world. We love Jesus and desire to serve Him by leading people to be real Christ followers in life together. We hope that this message will be a blessing and an encouragement for your life. If you would like more information about LifePoint Church, please visit us on the web at www.lifepointozark.com. Take your Bible this morning and open to Deuteronomy chapter 9. Deuteronomy chapter 9. While you're turning there, let me just kind of bring us to where we have come to today. Today we're looking at our fifth resolution in our series entitled Shaped for Glory Through Mission. And this series, we've covered four, originally four foundational pillars upon which we must build our life in order for God to shape us for His glory. And so we considered those four pillars. Uh, 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 God is faithful. Uh, to remember that He is faithful was pillar number one. In order to cultivate a heart for obedience, pillar number two. To pursue holiness, pillar number three. And to enjoy God's blessing, pillar number four. Yes, I am cheating. I have a bookmark. And I hope it helps you cheat too. If you forget, uh, you keep it with you. But then we turn to five resolutions, and, and, and just to, to give a synopsis of those resolutions, we talked about resolution number one was, God shape my heart for you. Resolution number two was, God shape my life for you. Resolution number three was, God shape my church for you. Resolution number four last week was, God shape my mission for you, and today, resolution number five is, God shape my message for you. And so as we look at these resolutions, we've acknowledged that resolutions are not stating what we are doing for God, but rather they articulate what we understand God to have already done for us and bringing us into the process of spiritual transformation, of maturity and growth in the Christian life. We understand how we participate with the work of God in our hearts and in our lives. And so that's where we find ourselves today. And I, I want to begin this sermon, as I have all the others, just by kind of giving the bullseye, the big idea of where we're at and where we're headed. And so the main point of the sermon today is simply this, that God shapes my message of His great love and mercy that atoned for sin and leads me to live in His blessing. God shapes my message to declare His great love and mercy that atoned for sin and leads me to live in his blessing. And so here's the fullness of the resolution for today. Resolution number five states I resolve by God's grace through Holy Spirit at work in me to shape my message by God's word to share the gospel and make him known. We're going to do this through four confessions today. And um, because as we consider what it looks like for a life, to be shaped, and, and, and a message, we, we have to deal with this one singular issue. And this, I hope you see this as a thread that ties us, but we've talked about since Deuteronomy chapter 1 that the distinguishing characteristic of God, the distinguishing activity of God in that day, which continues to this day, is that He is a God who speaks, right? And so this resolution culminates 
all of this first portion of Deuteronomy, the end of chapter 11, which we'll go through today, is really a, a break, a period, if you will, where Moses completes the introduction to his sermon, and then he'll get into the main part of his sermon from chapter 12 through the remainder of the book. And as he does this, he is teaching us that because God is a God who speaks, we are a people who must proclaim. We are people who speak. We have a message to proclaim as Christians because God gave a revelation. And his revelation that he has given must be made known to all of the peoples of the earth. And so that gives us a driving motivation. And I want to see us in our message today. I want us to know that we can understand this message clearly through these four confessions. And so I will not read all of the scriptures today. I will read some of them. And I've been avoiding this, but I can avoid it no longer. Do not judge me. Do you hear me? Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 1. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall. The sons of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to end to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Verse 6. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. For you are a stubborn people. Why don't you just say what you think, Moses? Right? Happy Thanksgiving. As we begin to look today... We see where Moses is beginning to draw his introduction, this this first message that he gives to a summary conclusion. And he concludes his introduction in this way. He summarizes all that he has said and and all that he not only has taught uh, in kind of outline form, but all that he will teach throughout the remainder of the book. And then he commands God's people to follow God's mission. That, that is so essential for our understanding of Christian, that we, uh, being Christian that we talked about last week. And then he reminds them that it is God who leads them as he does this great work for them. And he reminds them as to why they were chosen for this mission. And he says that God chose the Israelites for his mission not because of their righteousness and not because of their merit, but because of God. That's what he says. And so he warns the Israelites not to think 
that God chose you or not to believe that God chose you because you were the source of strength or you were some source of your success. Moses says that God will do this great work for the glory of his name and because he is faithful to the covenant of his promise. And how vital that is, not only for them to understand, but for us to know today too. He reminds them of their repeated uh, lack of righteousness, shall we say, unrighteousness that they displayed time and time again. He says, you're filled with rebellion from the very day that you left Egypt. Verse 7 is where he continues to go on. He says, no longer had the waters of the Red Sea receded or, or, or excuse me, returned, then you turned around and said, what are we doing in the desert? I'm thirsty. You know, I mean, there was not a, an expression of gratitude or thanksgiving before the grumbling and the bickering began, right? And we've seen that uh, if you've read Exodus. Rebellion continued in many small and too many big ways. We saw that where he went up on the mountain uh, and while he was with God and God was giving the Ten Commandments, they were pooling all of their gold together to melt it down and build a golden calf idol for them to worship. So God is speaking to them and giving the law out of love and they're building an idol so that they can love it. And we see that Moses intercedes for the people. God's wrath is stayed and the golden calf is destroyed. You see, rebellion was not a unique event for the Israelites, but it was a regular pattern of living for them. That's the way they lived. He says in verse 24 of chapter 9, You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. Well, thank you. Let's put that on the resume right up at the top, right? But it's true, and Moses is showing them the truth of this. You see, he intercedes for the people. Verses 25 to 29 really unpack Moses' prayer before God for the people. And it's interesting what he does. He calls upon the Lord to remember his covenant for them. Moses doesn't say, now God, you remember, these are some pretty good people. And all of them might not be God. I mean, all of them might not be good. You, you know who's on that list. But some of them are good. So there's enough good to save all. He doesn't do any of that. Not one time does he refer to any merit of the people for God to save them. Rather... Rather, he appeals to God's promise. He appeals to God's covenant. He appeals to God's character and nature to say, you are a God who saves. Save these people. Save these people. So God sees the people's rebellion, but he hears the intercessor's prayers. He is merciful and his heart is turned to save his people. So the Israelites' rebellion made them blind, made them ignorant and deceived. But God sent an intercessor to pray for them. When I was a student pastor in Arkansas, it was the first church I served at. Pastor was a gross overstatement of what I was and what I did, most and foremost. I'd been in the ministry for about a year. I was a college student, and this is how I spent my weekends. I went home to play with kids just a couple years younger than me. And they paid me to do it. So that's what I did. And I, I remember about a year and a half in, um, I'd been in ministry all my life because my father was a pastor, so at least um, I was creating the opportunity for ministers before I went into the ministry. Um, you, and some of you know how, uh, never mind, that went right over your heads, didn't it? Or maybe it just wasn't funny. Either way, let's keep going. I got a call and 
somebody began to tell me about one of the students in our youth ministry. Uh, I ministered in a small town at the end of a long, straight stretch of highway in Arkansas. And if you have any knowledge of Arkansas, a long, straight stretch of two-lane highway is an opportunity to show yourself what the car you drive will do, especially when you're 16 years old. And that's what he did. And racing at excessively high speeds, his car would not do the next thing he needed it to do. He left the road, hit a tree, and spent months in traction, escaping death ever so slightly. It took him over 10, 11 months, best I remember, to recover. Several months in the hospital, he came home, he spent many days in a chair in traction. He had the halo, full body cast in, in different ways, and and, and I remember uh, someone coming to me towards the end of his recuperation when he was back up and walking and he was returning to some normalcy of life. They told me this, that they had said to him, Boy, Carter, I bet since you survived that, you'll be thankful now and never do something stupid like that again. And his response to them was simply this, If that wreck didn't kill me, nothing can. Now, we have mercy for a 16-year-old, but that's one of the dumbest statements you could make, right? But the stupidity of this statement is almost as ridiculous as the Israelites' knowledge of the Canaanites' wickedness and subsequent deserving destruction, all the while being blind to their own. All the while being blind to their own. And believing that God would choose and use them because they deserved it. Because they deserved it. Friends, when God's work for you and when God's work in you produces anything other than overwhelming gratitude because of His mercy and grace, you too can be confident that your trust is in your own great intellectual wickedness. Let me just give a practical word for intellectual wickedness. Sin, depraved, stupidity. That's kind of how I think of it. You see, the Israelites understood that the Canaanites deserved to be destroyed because of their vast wickedness. Back up to Exodus where God first commanded them to go into the nation. Why did Moses use the Anakim and Anak and how large the people were or how much like giants they looked? Because that's the testimony of the ten cowards that came out of the promised land and let the reality of what was in their life overwhelm the promise of what God had said for their life. And they came out and said, yes, everything God says about this land is true. But there's one other thing you need to realize. Evidently, God didn't look at who was in there and they're big people and we look like grasshoppers in front of them. Let's not do this. And so they wandered in the desert for 40 years. And why did he use the imagery of of God's burning jealousy that would lead them forward? Because they had seen the mountain consumed with fire when the power of God fell on it to give them the Ten Commandments, right? What an image for God to give them, but them to be so forgetful when the situations of life became hard and arose in front of them. And when God said, go in and do what God told them to do, their response was not, but God! The Canaanites are some fairly nice people. I've met one or two of them before. They didn't care about the Canaanites. 
Who did they care about? They cared about themselves. Hey, what will happen to us if we do this? Right? You see, it wasn't because they were compassionate towards the Canaanites. They knew that the Canaanites deserved to be destroyed because of their vast wickedness. What the Israelites failed to see was their unworthiness to be used by God because of their own wickedness. Because of their own unrighteousness. You see, this the reality that is most difficult for us to see, for us to know, and for us to believe is the one that is most personal to us, our own unrighteousness, our own wickedness. We see brokenness and we think we know it so well, especially in our own hearts, but we do not acknowledge or confess wickedness. Rather, we deny it, making light of it by comparing ourselves to others. Maybe you've said this to yourself before, but God, I know I'm not perfect. I know I'm not like so-and-so. And we put forth like Billy Graham, you know, Charles Spurgeon. You know, I mean, we think of the greatest Christian that God must have been impressed with. And we say, I know I'm not them. And God says, yes, you are right. But at least I'm not them. Man, you were on such a roll. Aware of your own brokenness. Completely deceived about your own wickedness. That's what Moses is saying to the Israelites, and that's what brings us to our first confession that shapes our message. The most difficult doctrine for me to convince a culture deeply ingrained in Christian knowledge, quote unquote, with the, without the power that accompanies it. God shapes our message when we confess we are wicked and God's wrath burns against our wickedness. We are wicked, and God's wrath burns against our wickedness. Friends, we are unrighteous. There's no if, there's no and, there's no stutter or but that follows that. We are unrighteous. Paul provides a New Testament explanation of this in Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3. And if you read those chapters slowly, it feels as though something is dragging you into the blathosphere of the ocean waters. And not only do you lose your breath and need to breathe deeply, but you are sucked in so deeply that the pressure of the reality and the darkness of it just begins to implode your body as you delve even deeper. And he concludes in this way by culminating by saying in Romans 3.10 none are righteous. Not even one. There is no one who seeks God. No one who under Stands. And he says to us that there is no reason, there is no fraction of a merit within any person so that God should save them. And this is our first confession because until we're able to place our trust in this confession, you know what a confession is, right? A confession is a statement of your belief agreeing with an outside authority on something about you. And when you make this your first confession of the Christian message, you are saying, God, you are right, you are holy, you are righteous. I am wicked. I am not. You're agreeing with God about what God says about you. Friends, 
we need to hear this. First of all, God is the one from whom we are saved. And then the one by whom we are saved. The wickedness of others is easy to see, is it not? Is it not miraculous how easy it is to see the speck in someone else's eye? All the while balancing the log in our own. (laughs) That takes talent, right? And how good we are at it. God took the land from the Canaanites because they were wicked. Moses says that. If you do any measure of study about the wickedness of Canaanites in the Old Testament period, you'll have to stop reading because you'll become sick to your stomach. It's that deplorable. It's that depth of wickedness. It's almost impossible for us to see what God knows. And that is this. Not only that the Canaanites are wicked, but how deeply wicked we are. See, the Israelites would freely admit that they had made some mistakes, that they had committed some sins, but they refused to confess their own wickedness. But friends, knowing your own brokenness is not the same as believing in your complete wickedness. We love to talk about brokenness today. We we like to talk about our, um, our own insufficiencies, but friends... Brokenness is not your biggest problem. We love to talk about these. We love to lament over our shortcomings. You know what the word lament means? Like it's a serious weeping and crying. It's, you know, heaping ashes on our head, ripping our clothes, and and being serious about what we're trying to say. And so we love to lament about our shortcomings. We love to lament about our sinful habits. And we try to do it in such a way so that we talk about how we're getting over them. And we love to lament about addictions and about attitudes and the endless list that pities our own brokenness. And that's what it becomes. It becomes a self-pity party over our own brokenness. But how dare you speak to me of my wickedness we console ourselves with and we respond in this way I am moral enough I have enough integrity I have enough character I have enough truthfulness I have enough religion even enough of Jesus enough love for others enough good deeds enough right thinking enough And the great doctrinal statement of our wickedness is simply this. I have enough. Endlessly enough we acknowledge our brokenness and remain convinced of our acceptableness, of our meritableness, especially in comparison to others around us. Your biggest problem is not your brokenness. Your biggest problem is your wickedness. Wickedness from sin and wickedness that is unrighteousness. This is the root of all brokenness. This is what separates us from God and destroys any merit or quality within us that demands a holy God must accept us. And friends, until we believe and confess our own wickedness and turn to Christ through repentance, we can only continue to trust our own righteousness, all the while lamenting our brokenness. Is that not irony of ironies? Trusting our own righteousness, lamenting 
our brokenness. I'm not perfect, but... That may be the second doctrinal statement of the wickedness of people. How broken we are, deceived to the core. I I remember um, not too long ago sitting in a room with several pastors and there was one sharing with us this ministry idea and he was talking about how uh, he wanted to see this ministry uh, that, that was, listen, it was a, a huge need in the churches today, no doubt about that. And, and he was talking about all these ways he had identified the need and explained it. And it really helped. I mean, even sitting there, I was like, that sounds good. That's really good. And he talked about how he would address it and, and kind of the imagery, the figures that he'd get given to do that. And, and I thought, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing with everything he said. But I couldn't get over at the end of 20, 25 minutes when he finished casting vision for it. I couldn't get over one thing that the real point of the church had been missed. Because in all of the fixing of the people that we were going to do through this ministry... What had most been missed is the crux. It's the central message of the church, and it's the gospel. It's this issue of wickedness. It's the point that so many people who call themselves Christian today miss. And so do so many churches that just try to help people improve their lives. See, brokenness cannot be fixed until wickedness has been atoned. Understand that in this first confession. You can read all the self-help books you want to read. You can implement all the great pragmatic principles that you can get your hands on. And you can find the greatest uh, uh, bringing of those things together. But until your wickedness has been atoned, your brokenness will never get fixed. Brokenness is not your issue. Wickedness is. We kill ourselves trying to fix our brokenness, don't we? We congratulate ourselves in false piety about how we're doing. Call it humility. All the while denying our, wick, our wickedness. And when we deny our wickedness, every effort to lament and repair our brokenness only results in a self-established righteousness or a religiously conveyed righteousness regardless of regarding who we're turning to at the moment. You see, the right question for Christians is not simply this, do you do or think the things that you used to do? That comes into play. But the right question is this, are you more consumed with gratitude unto God because of what Christ has done for you? In your actions is thanksgiving is gratitude more explicitly displayed in your attitudes is gratitude more deeply inherent in what you believe not only about God but about other people and about situations that you find yourself in is gratitude more obvious in your beliefs and in your behavior here it comes is gratitude more quickly and first demonstrated to you is Christ Jesus himself of greater glory for you than you are to you? Is the word of God a greater wisdom to you than your own thinking? Or do you read the word and then filter it through your own wisdom? Is godliness through obedience in your life a greater value to you than acceptance from people? Then pragmatism or worldly wisdom is truth a more beautiful glory for you than just pragmatism. These are the ways when we know that we're confessing our wickedness instead of just stopping short 
at lamenting our brokenness. The only way you will ever come to fully know God's mercy and grace and the power of the gospel is to stop coddling your brokenness in a way that prevents you from confessing your wickedness. And the only way you will ever grasp your wickedness is to behold God's glory and His majesty which is before you. Brokenness only needs a helper to give a fix. Wickedness demands a savior to atone. And friends, you and I are wicked. Hopelessly broken because we are absolutely wicked. I didn't say that you had acted out the extent and the depth of your wickedness through your actions. I didn't, I'm not claiming that. I'm just telling you before God, we are wicked. God alone is righteous. Any measure of self-measured or worldly measured righteousness in this world is a righteousness that's spelled with a little r and not the righteousness that is from above. God alone is righteous. And praise be to God, He is loving. Do you hear that? I say to you in those two statements, it's the only way that we can make this first confession. God alone is righteous. That identifies that we are wicked. Praise God, He's loving. That gives me the motivation to be okay to say it. There's got to be a hope. And though our wickedness remain our first, thank, thank you, Jesus, it's not our final confession. Consider what's taking place here in the midst of people's wickedness. We see in chapter 9 when he gives us all the way into chapter 10 through verse 11. He's telling us about what they are. He's telling the Israelites actually about what has taken place with them. And he just shows them the depth of their wickedness. But he also teaches us and demonstrates for us uh, how, how he responded. Moses didn't have a response. But here's what he or, uh, He didn't know anything else to do. But here's what he said. He said, when I came down and you had created the golden calf, I was spent as a leader I was done. I knew there was no hope for you. You had rebelled to the uttermost. When God was displaying his most supreme act of love in giving you the Ten Commandments, you were demonstrating the deepest depth of your depravity in creating an idol to worship. And he says, I became afraid of God. I feared for my life because of your stupidity. Ever known anybody like that? Right? And he said, so I threw the tablets. I ground the idol. I threw it in the river. And I fell on my face before God. Afraid. Not only of what he might do. But of what he would have been fully just in doing. Destroying you. That's what Moses said. And so I prayed. And here's our second confession. When we look at his prayer, we understand that God shapes our message when we confess that God is faithful to his covenant and merciful to provide a substitutionary atonement. What a beautiful picture we see in the prayer of Moses. While God in love gives these words, the people are creating a God that they love. I, I want to tell you what, Moses points to their repeated rebellion and 
and, and, and how they turn away from God in idolatry. And when he comes down from the mountain, he throws, he throws the stones on their idols and crushes it and throws it in the river. The worst church growth strategy you can implement is destroying the idols of the people in front of them, crushing them and calling them wicked. It doesn't fill the seats of a church. And I'm convinced in my few short years of being in ministry and knowing that the church has been in a season that we've even labeled church growth as a legitimate strategy, that's exactly what we've done. We've stopped destroying people's idols and we've just tried to help them with their brokenness. We stopped telling them they're wicked and lo and behold, they believed every word we said until it didn't work. Until the fix wasn't enough. Because nothing had been atoned for. And so what we see in this prayer with Moses is so powerful for us, friends. This is so powerful. He intercedes before God on behalf of the people. His prayer. Remember, who's he interceding for? Not a trick question. The Israelites. His prayer makes no mention of them. Is this not great? Their greatest need. He doesn't even mention them. It's, it's bigger than that. His prayer makes no mention of the people's merits because he is under no delusion that they have any. There is no reason within or among the people that God should save them. Rather, Moses appeals to God's covenant relationship with them. God appeals for Moses to remember the promise that he has made and to act for the glory of his name. Friends, I'm going to tell you what. Confessing your wickedness and praying to God out of your wickedness instead of just out of your brokenness will radically change the way you relate to God because it will change the way you pray to God. You'll stop praying for all of your incremental needs as a first priority and you'll begin to pray for the glory of God to come upon your whole life. And then when you offer up your needs, which we are supposed to do because all of this is leading us to understand what Hebrews tells us, don't just come into the temple, run to the throne room. Be confident of God's wanting you there because of what God has done for you. How can you do that? Because when you pray for the glory of God to fall on your life, when you pray for God to remember the glory of his name, for him to be faithful to his promise, you are praying for heaven to come down. And listen, when heaven comes down, there's not a problem on earth that can remain your first priority, your first concern, because glory and majesty overwhelms all. I'm not telling you God doesn't care about your promise, God, your problems. God cares more about your most small, microscopic problems more intimately than you do. I'm telling you, if you let them continue to be the consuming issue of your mind and heart, you'll miss what God really has for you in salvation. Prayers of intercession for the faithfulness of God and the glory of His name are always powerful with God. Look at what's taking place here. Moses stood before God for the people. This is in the remainder of, of chapter 9 through the first part of chapter 10. But he points us to a greater one who was stood up on a cross before God for the people. Moses stood between God and the people that he might intercede with God for the people. Jesus hung between heaven and earth to intervene as a substitutionary atoning sacrifice 
for us. Moses prayed to turn away God's wrath. Jesus died that he might fully consume it by atoning for sin. Moses laid prostrate before the Lord in prayer, afraid of God's anger and hot displeasure against the people. Jesus was stretched out on the cross in order to consume and fully expend the raging hot anger of God against unrighteousness and sin. Jesus agonized in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, it tells us, so intensely that his sweat became blood. And then he went on to shed his own blood on the cross for our sin. He interceded on our behalf by intervening through dying in our place. He died to conquer sin, to destroy its eternal damnation that separates us uh, from God and to separate us from our sin as far as the east is from the west so that we would no longer be separated from God. And just as the river carried away the fine dust of the idolatry of the people, so the old hymn reminds us that the river of Emmanuel's blood washes our own sin. There is a fount filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath the flood lose all their guilty stain. What a powerful, powerful understanding. You see, the hot anger of God against sin Hear me, this is important. The hot anger of God against sin can no longer be poured out on anyone who is in Christ by faith because it has been emptied and exhausted on Jesus on the cross. Do you see that? If God's going to be faithful to Himself, if God's going to be faithful to His promise, If God is going to be faithful to the glory of his name, he cannot be mad at those who trust in Christ for their sin. To do so would say that Jesus' sacrifice wasn't enough. We're going to have to do it again. It would say the same thing that we do when we keep running back to our sin. Jesus, just be crucified one more time for me. Jesus says once was all that was needed because all the wrath of God being poured out against the unrighteousness and wickedness of people was emptied. Emptied. When you look in the wrath tank of God through the eyes and the sacrifice of Christ, it's empty. There's not a drop left in the line. When you look at the wrath of God being revealed against all the wickedness of people, It's not there. It's not that God has just continued to withhold it from you because of your sin, because of your brokenness. It's not there. There is no wrath. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because it's been expended on Christ on the cross. Poured out. I promise you, you don't know God better than he knows himself. And when we believe that God is just mad at us, it's so much more than that, friends. But his provision for us has been so much greater. And this, this is why Christians have a message that all must hear. 
that all must hear. God can't be mad at those who trust in Christ. He has said he would not be and he will be faithful to himself. God listened to Moses' prayer and he honored it. God was fully sacrificed in Jesus, or satisfied in Jesus' atoning sacrifice. Moses turned to the people and commanded them to turn their hearts to God and to obey. Jesus turns to the people and even still today invites, Come, all who are weary and heavy laden, come and find rest. He's talking to wicked people here, friends. He's talking to you and I. Come. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, God is faithful not just to do what we need Him to do and not just to do what we want Him to do, but God is faithful to save because He wills salvation. He is faithful to Himself first and foremost. He is faithful to save to the uttermost because He is the God who wills salvation for all eternity. God saves by the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what Moses is pointing the people to here. Pointing them to God. And so we return to the text. Look with me in chapter 10. Chapter 10 verse 12. Moses is under no delusions, friend. That the people will in any way accomplish anything. But he is under the full conviction That God will do everything He's promised. Verse 12. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You, above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. And so Moses moves from our second confession to set forth the right way to respond to the Lord. And he gives them five words. He says this, you should fear, you should walk, you should love, you should serve, and you should keep his commandments. Now to us, it just looks like a laundry list of things to do, right? But what Moses was saying to the people is from the innermost depths, the core of your being, where God is at work in you, where God is leading you to the extremities of your life and the most smallest and in 
considerable actions and attitudes of your life, to the extremities of your life, honor God and remember Him in every way because He served you with the kind of power that empowers you to do that. He doesn't anticipate that they will do all of this or any of this on their own, but rather through the new heart that God gives to them. And so responding to the Lord is never first, friends, an issue of outward performance, but rather of inward orientation and inward inclination by faith in God. And so this brings us to the third confession of our message, which is this, that God gives a new heart that we might know Him. You see, the new heart we need, God gives. He doesn't tell us to go get it, to go make it, to go contrive of it, but just rather to receive it. He fills it with his glory and love that holds the heart. These are some of the most poetic and powerful verses in all of Scripture. Verse 14 and 15. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens. That's a big God. Right? That's a big God. Do you know what the microscopes of this earth, of the most powerful expressions of science, have seen in our day and time when they have looked out to the end of our universe and seen an unlimited number of universes that they can't even begin to conceive of? And this is scientific proof that they're speaking of. Do you know what they've said? We've only begun to see. And that's right. Because this is the God who is God of the heavens of heavens. And the greatest picture we see on this earth will but be less than a Polaroid. A selfie of what God awaits. But he's also the God of the earth. He's not only the grandest and the greatest and the most majestic. He's the most intimate and the closest. And that's what he tells us here. And what does he say about this God who is so great yet... The Lord set his love, set his heart in love on your fathers. I'm I'm sorry, between verses 14 and 15, how much merit and accomplishment did you hear on the part of the Israelites to deserve this love? None. What did they do before God set his heart in love on their forefathers? None yet. Didn't do anything. That's right. Why did God do that? Because that's the kind of God that he is. Friends, before you ever come to a point where you have to worship God for what he's done for you, Thanksgiving, there is a lifetime of worship just in praise and who he is. Because this is who our God is. And so the third confession that we come to today is that God gives us a new heart to know him. He renews the heart so that his commands that he gives to us might be a joy for us and not a condemnation. You see, he says, circumcise your hearts. A circumcised heart is one that surrenders to behold the glory of God. That's why he's reminding them of the expansiveness and the intimate nature of the glory of God. It's a new attitude, a new disposition toward God. In other words, their hearts would no longer be covered and hidden from God, but rather exposed and laid bare before him. They would no longer be stubborn and stiff-necked, but rather they would uh, stop rejecting God. God in order to fully submit 
to him. You see, we submit the heart and expose it to God because he alone is the one who is worthy. Behold, it says. You know what behold is? Open your cup. I'm about to fill it. That's what God's trying to tell you. Behold, he's the one who fills us with glory as we trust in him more. He fills us with his love as we come to know him more intimately. He fills us with his power that we might live out what he has brought to life within us. And so we no longer try to live to please God, for if we do that, we try to bribe God against who he is. And what does it say about bribes with God? God, I'm not that bad. Oh, that's right. You know what? I'm going to take that from you. God doesn't accept bribes. God doesn't need our self-righteousness nor our religious righteousness. So therefore, we don't have to try to live to please him. We can know we've already been accepted by him. We live full of a glory so powerful that it enables us to love in a new way, in a way that we've been loved, sacrificial love. <coughs> Excuse me. He says, so, so because you've been loved in this way, go love the sojourner. You were a sojourner once. You had nothing, but when you left Egypt, you were rich. Why? Because I used the people of Egypt to give that stuff to you because I knew you'd need it when you got out. So go love the sojourner richly. Why? Because that's the way I have loved you. Go minister to people. Meet people in their darkest hour and their deepest need. Not because you can do something about it, but because I can. Right? How powerful our message, how powerful our confession. The heart consumed by God's glory lives to love others as he has loved us for his praise. This is what Jesus goes on to tell Nicodemus in John chapter 3 when he says this, talking about the new heart. He, he says, you know, Nicodemus, you know that you can't just do all of this stuff and be okay with God because you're a Pharisee. You've done all this stuff and a whole lot more than most people. And you know within your own heart, you are not okay with God. And Nicodemus is like, how do you know that? Well, because I'm God. But he says what? You must be born again. You need a new heart. And in that new heart, I will put my spirit. And through my spirit, I will bring you to life. And through that life, I will fill you with the power to walk in the newness of the life that I am birthing within you. You see, friends, salvation from God restores us in relationship with God while revealing the love of God to all in the world. That's what salvation does. And when God births new life in our heart, it changes the way we live in the world. And that brings us to our final passage. I'm only going to read verse 1 of chapter 11. But it says this, You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep His charge, His statutes, His rules, and His commandments always. I don't know about you, but when I read that verse, I'm glad it's not the first one we read. Because I'd be convinced it's just adding to the list. But when we see how God has already saved us, it puts this in relationship. Moses shows the people how covenant relationship with God leads us to live in God's blessing. In our life, in our home, in our family, our community, and in our world. We've already talked about all of that. But Moses reminds them of all of that in chapter 11, in the first 25 verses, as he recounts these things. You see, knowing God's love means living distinctively in relationship in relationship to him. And this, this creates our fourth confession for the day. 
that loving God, living in His love, means living distinctively for Him in order to enjoy His blessings. When you consider personally all that God has done, and and He begins to remind the Israelites, and it's a reminder for us to remember. Verses 2-7, through He says, you need to let God's mighty work for you be the consuming and motivating power in you in order to live for Him. Verses 8-12, through He goes on to talk about obedience to God's commands, gives strength to follow as He leads and, 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 and brings pleasure to our life as He provides for us. And so He directs us to keep looking to God in all of the seasons of our life, lest our hearts stray. He's instructing us to remember God as He leads us and as He blesses us. And as He he has in the past, so shall He as we move forward. And then He turns us continually to trust only in the blessing of God and to turn away from sin's curse. He says this to us, that God's power at work for you reveals his power at work in you to see what he wants to do through you. What God has done for you, he wants to do in you, and he wants to do through you. And so what he's telling us is this, that that devotion with God does more to fuel our obedience than any amount of exerted will. Therefore, we can rest. I didn't say we were lethargic but we get rest in God. And here's how he draws the picture to conclude the sermon. He says, here's what I'm going to do. On this mountain over here is Mount Gerizim. That represents all the fullness of God's blessing for you. And over here is Mount Ebal. And that represents all the curse of sin for you. And every day when you wake, you're going to see the two. And every day you're going to know God's blessing is right there for you. And sin's curse is crouching at your door. And you'll have to make a decision which you're going to walk towards and which you're going to walk away from. You see, I would propose to you that in all of our celebration of our brokenness, and if this is your first time at LifePoint, understand this. We're not against broken people. You're looking at the biggest, broken, most wicked person in the room. And I mean that sincerely. So please understand, these people obviously don't talk about brokenness because he is hammering it today. Quite frankly, daily we're talking about brokenness with many different people. We're just not celebrating it as God. And that's what he's saying to us. Because when you celebrate your brokenness in such a way to deny your wickedness, you're living at the foot of Mount Ebal and you are flirting with sin's worst curse for you. But when you know this other mountain exists and you know that all you have to do to move towards that mountain is to stand up and to turn and to know that what that mountain holds is greater than that what this mountain has spewed out on you, you can turn away from this one and you can walk towards this one. Living in God's blessing, friends, means daily turning away from sin's curse and walking in obedience to God's truth. And the gospel is God's power in us to believe, to obey, to walk, and to live on the mountain of blessing. So as the worship team returns, I want to bring this to a conclusion for us. Let me recap the four confessions that shape our message. First of all, we are wicked 
And God's wrath burns against our wickedness. Might I invite you today to understand that confession most intimately. Substitute the we for me. And just simply say, I am wicked. And God's wrath burns against my wickedness. If you won't begin there, you won't need the rest of it. Because it's not that big of a deal. The second confession says this, that God is faithful to His covenant and merciful and loving to provide a substitutionary atonement. Have you reckoned in your life, Christian, I'm speaking to you, have you reckoned in your life that when Jesus died on the cross, it was not only for you, it was you. That you are crucified with Christ. You no longer live. Christ lives in you and the life you live in the flesh you live by faith in the Son of God and if you are still considering you as a greater glory than God you are coming down off the cross and you are not accepting Christ's crucifixion as your own you're trying to die for God again and God will not be bribed by you but God will lovingly accept you when you hear the call of Jesus say come and you say Lord I'm coming I'm coming he says don't only come courageously run that's how he wants to receive you just like the father received the prodigal son the third confession is that God gives a new heart to know him have you been born again I didn't ask how many times you'd sat in church I didn't ask how many long boring sermons you'd had to sit through I didn't ask how many right things you had done I ask you have you a new heart that you know didn't come from you, that you know God put in you and His Spirit lives with you. If not, friends, you need to trade in all your religion for Jesus. Let the Spirit of God make you alive by faith alone in Him. And finally, loving God means living distinctively for Him to enjoy His blessings in the are you enjoying God's blessing? I, it's so adequate that Thanksgiving's coming up this week. And originally, I did not plan this this way. But here's a convicting question. Are you enjoying God's blessings for your life? Are you taking them and going, yeah, that's great, God. Can I have one more? Can, can I, you know, it's like a kid who gets a toy and an hour later, it's not enough. You just said, thank you. And let that thanks take you into a place where what He's done for you is even secondary to who He is. And you just enter into praise and worship because you're in the presence of God. How about today, friends? Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray. and We're going to stand and respond to the Lord in song. If you would like an elder to pray with you today, we'll be here at the front. We would love to do that. The altar is open. You can come and pray. Do business with God on your own. If you need to come today and confess Christ for the first time, I want to invite you to do that. Not because we're tracking it or something, but because we want to be encouraging to you about God doing a work you can't imagine how good it is in your life. Let's respond to the Lord. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Spirit of God, work in this place now. Would you help us? God, we're fighting a war right now to substitute our brokenness and a fix for it with what you've said is wickedness that needs to be atoned for. 
Guard us from ourselves in that very argument. Help us today, Lord, to lay aside the things that we've substituted for you. The idols that we've fashioned in your place. And just to enjoy your love as you wash it over us today. In Christ's name we pray.